So Father, we thank you and we rejoice today in the truth that you are sovereign over all, that even what the enemy means for evil, you will turn it for our good and for the glory of your name. Father, we rest in this hope this morning, even as we grieve over the presence of sin in this world, as we see its devastating consequences and effects, we rest and we trust in the promise that the worst of what the enemy uses against us and attempts to use to turn us against you, you will turn and have turned against him and will turn it for our good. Lord, we rest in this promise today. And so, Father, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would use it to make us more like your son, Jesus, to help us understand more of your heart and who you are. Lord, I, I pray today over every father in this room. Father, I, I thank you for my dad, and I rejoice that he is with you. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being a father. I thank you for three boys. And Lord, I pray that even through my imperfection, that through my sinfulness, through my brokenness, God, I pray that they would be able to see through me to see you. God, for every father in this room, that we would take seriously the privilege and the responsibility of shepherding our children in such a way that they would understand more of who you are. And it's my prayer this morning, Lord, for every child in this room, for every father in this room, it's my prayer that our kids would love you more because we're in their lives. Help us as imperfect fathers point our children to the perfect heavenly father. We want to see you now, Lord, in your word this morning. So will you now, Father, speak through me a word that will edify your church, glorify your name. I ask that you sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, uh, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be together in our time today. If you weren't here with us uh, last week, we kicked off a new message series in the Sermon on the Mount. This is something we expect is going to take us about six months through the end of the year. So I uh, hope you've got a sturdy bookmark, Matthew 5 through Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be here uh, for a minute together as a church family. Again, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. Uh, the way my Father's Day started, uh, mine was early. It was around 1.30 this morning. Our five-year-old came in my room with an emergency. The emergency was that he could not find in his bed his favorite stuffed dog. So uh, I got out of bed and escorted Lincoln up to his room where I immediately found his stuffed dog in his bed, exactly where he said it wasn't. So uh, I don't know about you, I am operating off of coffee and Jesus this morning. And, um, and if you see me hunched over, be not concerned. Just come wake me up and I'll, I'll wrap things up this morning. But Matthew 5 is where we'll be again today. And what we saw last week as we introduced this message series is that the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's radical confrontation with a wildly disoriented world. And the eight statements that kick off the Sermon are known to us as the Beatitudes. This uh, comes from a Latin term, beatus, which simply translates, translates happy. But as we saw last week, uh, this word blessed or blessed, it doesn't exactly equate to happiness in the way the world defines happiness. We saw that the true experience of happiness can only flow from our place and our position of blessedness in Christ. So when Jesus says, blessed are you, 
It's a word that indicates God's approval and acceptance of us, and then we live our lives out of the overflow and the abundance of that place of approval and acceptance. So uh, last week, I briefly touched on the fact that what makes the Beatitudes so countercultural is, is that uh, it, it's completely opposite of what the world means and thinks it knows what it means to be blessed and happy. So each one of these statements, the Beatitudes, it, at first glance, they seem contradictory in nature. Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. We'll see today, blessed are those who mourn. We'll see in the coming weeks, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Jesus even says, blessed are the persecuted. These are not virtues, attributes, or designations that are typically celebrated by the world. And every one of the Beatitudes, at first glance, looks like a contradiction in terms. Have you ever seen something right away that just looks like a total contradiction? Uh, this past week, I saw this picture that was floating around the internet. It was a picture of a car that had crashed into the front of, the build, of a building, and, and the name of the business that this vehicle had driven into like the front window of was called Drive Safe. <laughs> Feels like we're missing the point there a little bit. This picture, it's a contradiction in terms. Like, this person was undoubtedly not driving safe. And they've, they've driven into a, a, a business called DriveSafe. And that, that's kind of how the Beatitudes seem. We read these statements, and they seem at first glance contradictory in terms. But one of the Beatitudes, more than any of the others, seems a little bit more contradictory in terms, and it's the one we're going to look at today. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. We saw last week this word blessed. It can translate as happy, but it's deeper than this. It's really not a great translation because it's happiness that flows from blessedness, which is why blessed is still the, the, the best word, but it can translate happy. So it's, you know, it would sound like a complete contradiction in terms if we were to say, in essence, happy are the sad. If we were to say, happy are the unhappy. But what Jesus shows us in verse 4 is that blessedness and brokenness are not in competition with one another. And this is important for us to see because in many ways, what we're living in a world that teaches us to avoid moments like this, avoid the difficult thing, avoid the obstacle, avoid anything in your life that's going to cause stress or trouble or, or cause you any sort of internal turmoil. But what Jesus shows us in verse four is that our blessedness and our brokenness are not in competition with one another. Our blessedness and our brokenness are not in competition with one another. It was Herman Melville who said, until we understand that one grief outweighs a thousand joys, we will never understand what Christianity is trying to make us. And what Matthew 5, 4 shows us is that those who mourn over their sin, those whose hearts grieve over their sin, those who see sin and the effects of sin in the world and are moved to a posture of grief and mourning and anguish, those who mourn over their sin will receive comfort from the Savior. Our blessedness and our brokenness are not in competition from one another, and it is on the other side of our brokenness that we are promised eternal comfort in Christ. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read again verses 1 through 4. I want to make a couple notes along the way uh, just to, to remind us of some things that we saw last week. So verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, which was a posture of authority for Jewish teachers, it says his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so I mean, uh, open his mouth, this indicated he was about to say something very serious, something very weighty, something very significant. And it says he taught them. 
Again, how, how is Jesus going to wage war with the upside-down world? He's not going to do it with, with a sword. He's not going to do it with political revolution. He's going to do it by teaching. He opened his mouth and he taught them. This is the weight of the word of God. This is how Jesus is staging warfare. In verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We saw last week that, that phrase, poor in spirit. This references those who are morally and spiritually bankrupt, and they know it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here in verse 4, now blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So in verses, uh, excuse me, verse 4, what we see today is both a paradox and a promise. First, we look at a divine paradox. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the unhappy. Blessed are those who mourn. Now again, quick review from last week. We need to make sure we understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the context in which Jesus delivered it, and then also the structure of the Beatitudes. Before Jesus began preaching the Sermon on the Mount, we saw last week from Matthew 4:17, he had gone about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the foundation of all of the preaching and teaching of Jesus. It was calling the world to repentance. That word repent, it means very simply a change of mind that leads to a change of life. So the type of life Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7 is the type of life that flows from a mind and a heart and a life that have been transformed by the gospel. So, so again, if you didn't hear it last week, hear it today. The life Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is not possible if we've not done Matthew 4.17. It starts in the place of repentance. This was the foundation of Christ preaching and teaching everywhere he went. And each one of the Beatitudes we saw last week builds on the others. The, the Beatitudes are not describing for us eight different groups. They're describing the whole of the Christian experience. These are not eight independent phrases. They are interdependent phrases with, with each statement building on the next. So again, if you were to ask the question then really simply this morning, who are those who mourn? Well, part of the answer is found in verse 3. Each beatitude builds on the others. Who are those who mourn? Well, we just go back to verse 3. It is those who are poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are those who recognize that they're morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. They are those who have recognized their total inability to win God's approval by their own attempts at holiness and also recognize that the righteousness they desperately crave can only be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus does not say that his kingdom is for those with the most religious, re impressive religious resume. Jesus says it's for those who are crushed under the debt of their sin. They're crushed under the debt of their sin, and they know that they have absolutely nothing to bring to Jesus outside of their insurmountable debt. And Jesus says in verse 3, that's the kind of person my kingdom belongs to. Not the person with the most impressive religious resume, the person who has nothing to bring to the table, and they know it. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So here's the progression then from verse 3 to verse 4. Since those who are poor in spirit understand the deadly effects and consequences of sin, then those who are poor in spirit will grieve and mourn over sin. We're sensitive to sin and its power and its presence and the effects in our lives and in the world. And so this leads us to a place then where we grieve and we mourn. R.C. Sproul has called sin cosmic treason because sin is an infinite offense that grieves the heart of God. And Jesus says that those who mourn are blessed because when we grieve, church, what God grieves, it's evidence that we understand his heart. 
We see evidence of this all through Scripture. Those, it's those who are closest to the heart of God, who seem to be most sensitive and, and grieve most over the reality of sin. The psalmist writes, Psalm 119, 136, My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Because people do not keep your law. It was the rejection of the word of God that moved him to mourn. So when we see the word of God mocked and maligned and rejected where sin and lawlessness and rebellion abound, it should grieve the hearts of the people of God. And one of the clearest evidences that we truly belong to Jesus Christ is that out of the depth of our poverty of spirit, we mourn sin and the effects of sin in our world. So what do we mourn? We mourn sin, but more specifically, we mourn over the presence of sin we th see through Scripture in our lives. We mourn over the presence of sin in our lives. And all through the Old and New Testament, we see examples of heroes of the faith who, who mourn the, the reality of the presence of ongoing sin in their lives. So we uh, studied last, at the end of last summer Isaiah's vision from Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah came into the presence of the Lord, the first words that came out of his mouth in this vision were words of mourning over his sin. He, he's confronted with the holiness of God, and the first thing he says is, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Romans chapter 7 uh, is, is every Christian's experience. Paul is just lamenting his total inability to keep up with the law of God, to, to walk in step with the word of God. He's like, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. I mean, he just laments his total inability to, to, to just faithfully follow Jesus. And, and he, he finally just comes to this in Romans 7, 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls his disciples as he's calling them, he calls them to cast their nets to the other side of the boat. They've been fishing for a long time, and Peter initially resists this. He's like, well, we've tried that already, but if you say so, I guess we'll do it. And so they, they toss the nets to the other side of the boat, and what happens? They catch so many fish, the nets start to break, the boat starts to sink, and Peter realizes that he's doubted the Lord. And so when he gets back to the shore, Luke 5, Peter says, depart from me. Why? For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. We looked briefly last week, Psalm 51. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and conspired to have her husband Uriah put to death. We read verses 1 and 2 congregationally just a few moments ago. Then in verses 3 and 4, David goes on to say, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I've always loved these words from Leonard Ravenhill as he's reflecting on David's repentance. He had this to say. He said, David had one of the most blessed experiences in the world, and the blessedness was that he was miserable about his sin. This is what Jesus is getting at. Blessed are those who mourn. Friends, do we mourn over our sin? Do we mourn over our sinful impulses? Do we mourn over our lustful desires? Do we mourn over our materialistic cravings? Do we mourn over our spiritual apathy and indifference? When the word of God confronts our sinful condition, do we drop to our knees and mourn, or do we stiffen our necks? The presence of sin in our lives should lead us to mourn. And we, we don't just mourn sin over our lives. We also see through Scripture we should mourn over sin in the church. In the books of First and Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses the church in Corinth. And if you've read First and Second Corinthians, they were crazy, right? Church in Corinth was nuts. 
I mean, they've been compromised by, by false doctrine and idolatry and sexual immorality. So Paul writes not one, but two really lengthy letters addressing all this within the body. And as he confronts their sin, this was his indictment against them, 2 Corinthians 5. And he said, and you are arrogant. He's like, this is part of your issue. You're arrogant about this. Ought you not rather to mourn? He says that that's the appropriate posture with sin, not, not to celebrate it, not to, to tolerate it within the body. You're, you're arrogant about it. You're proud about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? It should break our hearts when the church is compromised by sin. We should grieve and lament and mourn when churches abandon the gospel and embrace false doctrine or replace it with secular ideologies. We should grieve and lament and mourn when when physical and sexual abuse are committed in the church and then subsequently covered up. We should grieve and mourn when power and authority are abused in the body of Christ. We should grieve and mourn when God's people are manipulated and deceived for financial gain. We should grieve and mourn when gossip and slander and secretive talk are just pervasively infecting the body from the inside out and dividing God's people. We should grieve and mourn over sin. We who are poor in spirit should be most sensitive to sin and the effects of sin. It should lead us to grieve and lament and mourn. Um, a few years ago, I was in a men's Bible study when the church was first getting started, and uh, we had a guy in the Bible study who was a career firefighter. Any, any other firefighters in the room? Just curious. Okay, so a few others. And, uh, and so um, I don't even remember how it came up one morning. It was the winter. It was cold, and um, we had just moved into a, a, a new house, and um, our boys' bedroom to our two oldest boys was right above the garage, and so not as insulated as, as the rest of the house. We, we felt the room getting cold at night when we would go and check on them. So, you know, we bought them a little, you know, space heater just to stick in the corner of the room just to heat up the room a little bits throughout the course of the evening. And I was sharing this at the table and the guy who sat at the table, he, he gets a really serious look on his face and he leans forward. He goes, did you say space heater? Yes. Like is, is everything okay? He was like, everything is not okay. And, and so man, he just goes on the next few minutes as a career firefighter and he, he rattles right off the top of his head, all these statistics and like kids like who, whose lives had been lost because of space heaters, and the number of houses that burn down every single year because of space heaters. He's like, you need to get rid of that space heater. And that's like, I'm texting Emily. I'm like, throw it out. Like, get it, you know, like, man, get rid of this thing. Like, again, he had seen firsthand for a whole career. The, the impact and the devastating consequences of what is caused by sin. So church, those of us who are poor in spirit, those of us who understand the depth of sin and the poverty of spirit that we live in, we more than anyone else, we should be sensitive to sin and the effects of sin. And we should treat it with great urgency when it's discovered. We don't just grieve sin in our lives. We don't just grieve sin in the church. We also see through scripture, we should grieve over sin in the world. And, and, and it's important, church, that we grieve over the sins of the world because the world is not going to grieve over the sins of the world. The world does the opposite of grieve and mourn over sin. And we have seen that on, on full display all throughout the course of this month. You know, the entire month of June uh, has become annually uh, this massive celebration of the LGBTQ lifestyle. And you know, I, want, I want to be really, really clear here, make sure we're on the same page. Like our, our calling as followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of someone's lifestyle, is to love our neighbors, is to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. And so if the church is nothing else, it has to be a place where those who experience same-sex attraction, where those who are experiencing gender dysphoria and confusion, it needs to be a place where they can hear the gospel without fear of ostracism. In the same way that, that we, in our sin, the Lord pursued us and, and, and someone shared the good news with us, like we have to be able to do this as well. But church, it's very, very telling 
that those who have chosen to embrace and affirm and celebrate this lifestyle, it should be very, very telling and it should lead us to a place of mourning that the word that's used to designate as celebration of this month is the word pride. Because that's the world's approach to sin. The world is not going to mourn over sin. The world is going to be proud of sin. And, and this should grieve us to, to our core. Again, I want, I want to stress this over and over again. Like there, there's a massive difference between the person who, who is experiencing same-sex attraction to the person who is experiencing gender confusion and, but recognizes, man, this is out of step with God's word, that this is out of step of his design, this is out of step with his desire, and is doing everything that they can by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the sin in their life, to walk in step with God's word, to faithfully follow Jesus. There is a massive difference between that person and the person who has passively given themselves over to their desires, rejected God's word, and then celebrated their rejection of it. That this should lead us to a place of grief and mourning. The things that grieve the heart of God should grieve the hearts of God's people. And it should cause us to grieve that our culture does not mourn over sin. It smiles at sin. It's proud of sin. And we're reminded last week that Jesus does not say, blessed are the proud in spirit. He says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, who, who know they're, they're powerless to overcome sin on their own and that it's only by the grace of God in their lives. The heartbeat of the Sermon on the Mount is that the lives of followers of Jesus should look radically different from the rest of the world. But in so many ways, you know, the lines between the world and the church have become so blurred that it's hard to tell the difference between the two. And I fear this is what's happened maybe with some of us, is that we've become so indoctrinated and catechized by the culture that we don't even know what sins we need to mourn. Or even worse, like we, we are aware of what sins we need to mourn, but we're afraid to do it because of how it might make us look. If it grieves the heart of God, it needs to grieve the hearts of God's people. And Jesus says that there is blessing in this grieving over sin. You know, culturally, we are looking at the complete rejection and redefinition of God's design in gender and sexuality and marriage. We've talked about this a lot in recent weeks. For decades, it's been the complete embrace and celebration even of innocent life being destroyed in the womb. Church, church does this lead you to mourn? Does it lead you to mourn? Are you devastated or have you become desensitized? You know, on, on this Father's Day, my heart grieves over the fact conservative estimates, 25 to 30 percent of children growing up in homes without fathers, does that lead you to grieve and to mourn? Half of marriages ending in separation or divorce are skyrocketing. Addiction, overdose, and suicide rates do sin and the effects of sin lead you to mourn. And I'm begging us this morning, don't tune this out. Don't tune this out. It's so easy for us in our screen-addicted mentality. Like, we see something that's difficult, and man, it's become way too easy for us just to scroll on to the next thing. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. That makes me have feelings I don't want to have. I'm just going to move on. I'm just going to move on from these things. Church, we cannot just keep numbing ourselves into a place of spiritual apathy and difference. If it grieves the heart of God, it needs to grieve ours. And Jesus promises that there's blessing in our grieving. I think I shared this story a couple of years ago. I couldn't remember exactly, but I wanted to share it again today. Um, my grandfather served as a pastor and uh, as an itinerant evangelist for over 70 years. For over 70 years, he devoted his life to the preaching of the word. He began preaching uh, when he was a teenager towards the end of World War II. A lot of the young men and kind of backup preachers in the church had, had gone off to fight. And so his pastor one morning said, T.D., you're preaching tonight. 
14, 15 years old. And, and so over 70 years, he had the opportunity to, to preach the gospel in various settings. And, and he was doing this up until uh, close to his 90th birthday just a couple of years ago. And so he's in a place now, his health is rapidly declining, his mind is really quickly fading. So um, for the last few years, I've really tried to take advantage of every opportunity I've had just to have conversations with him, just to pick his brain and have some significant, meaningful conversation with him before uh, he goes to, to be with the Lord. And uh, so a couple of years ago, we were sitting uh, in, in their living room, visiting my grandparents and downstairs in my grandfather's living room, we had a Braves game on and we were just talking about a number of things related to the church and ministry. And, and I just asked him this question. I was like, you know, Papa, what, what do you see as being the biggest difference between preaching now and when you began preaching 70 years ago? And he sat there for just a second and he collected his thoughts and just got this very concerned look on his face. And he looked at me in the eyes and he just said, there is no brokenness over sin. That's what he saw. What was the difference between now and 70 years ago? He said there is no brokenness over sin. Many of us grew up with this language. Our, our grandparents and great-grandparents, they talked about the burden. And it just seems that this has been lost, that there is no burden. That there is, there is no burden for those who are apart from Christ, that there is no urgency to live our lives in light of eternity. There is no urgency in evangelism. And there's no brokenness over sin. You know, we treat, I fear, Matthew 5, 4 like it's an incompatible contradiction. We think that our blessedness is in competition with brokenness. But church, when we refuse a posture of brokenness, what Jesus shows us here is that we actually hinder our experience of blessedness. And we know this because Jesus is, is, is exactly what he says in verse 4. Jesus himself even demonstrated mourning over sin. At different points in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus not only pronouncing blessings, but also pronouncing judgments. Uh, spring of last year, we studied Matthew chapter 23 and, and the, the woes that Jesus spoke over the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. Statements and pronouncements of judgment. But even in his pronouncement of judgment, we see his heart grieving for them and mourning for them. This is Matthew 23, 37. At, at the end of pronouncing all of these judgments and all these indictments against the religious leaders of the day, Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This is the heart of our Savior. He, he sees the sinful, broken condition of the world, and even for those who would oppose him, he mourns over them. In Luke's gospel account, he actually records a more concise version of the Beatitudes, and after his shorter version of the Beatitudes, he follows it up with a series of woes that were pronounced by Jesus. And so here's how Luke records this Beatitude, a little bit of a different angle. He records Jesus as saying, blessed are you who mourn now, for you shall laugh. If you're, you're mourning over sin, you're mourning over the brokenness of this world, you're overcome with grief for it, he, he tells them, man, rest, because the day is coming, you will have joy. There will be laughter in the presence of the Lord. That's the blessing. But then a few verses later, he pronounces the opposite, which is the woe. In Luke, uh, Luke 6.25, he, he, he then warns on the opposite side, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. So this is the picture that Jesus is painting. If you look at the sin that's in your life, in the church, in the world, and you grieve over it, you mourn over it, you, you are broken by sin and the devastating impacts and consequences of sin, Jesus says, hang on, comfort is coming on the other. You will be comforted. If that's your heart, that is the heart of God, and one day comfort is coming. But then he warns, 
You look at the sin in your life, you look at the sin in the church, you look at the sin in the world, and you just decide you're going to eat, drink, and be merry. You're going to be numb to this. You're going to be indifferent to this. You're just going to functionally not care about this. You're going to even laugh about this. He warns, the day is coming, you will mourn. The question is not, do we mourn over sin? The question is, will we do it willingly? Because one way or another, we will mourn over sin. You know, I think it tells us a lot about our Savior that we do have a verse, we, we, excuse me, we don't have a verse in the Bible that says Jesus laughed, but we do have a verse in Scripture that says Jesus wept. And, and listen, I'm not suggesting, I'm not implying or insinuating that Jesus never laughed. I think he did. Uh, and in fact, we see Jesus through the Gospels say humorous things, things that would have been very funny uh, to the crowd sitting around him. And so I'm not, I'm not implying that, that, he, that he never laughed, but I, I think it's, you know, when centuries before Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be a man of sorrows, I think this tells us a lot about the heart of our Savior. And there's a reason why these words of Jesus are so revolutionary, because again, at this point in time, as we've looked at blessed are those who mourn, it'd be easy right now to say, this doesn't all sound very blessed. Like, this sounds burdensome, this sounds weighty, this sounds hard, this sounds uncomfortable. I'm struggling to see how this could be a place of blessing. Well, that's why we need the second half of the verse, right? Because the mourning is not in, or the, the blessing's not in the experience of mourning. The ultimate blessing is the promise of comfort. So we've seen the paradox, blessed are those who mourn, but then Jesus follows it up with a promise, for they shall be comforted. The paradox is blessed are those who mourn, but the divine promise on the other side of this is for they shall be comforted. And understand, this promise is only coming to those who have a heart of God that grieves over sin. This promise is not made to those who become numb and indifferent and even celebrating of sin. It's only for those who are in Christ. This blessing is for those whose hearts grieve over sin in their lives, in the church, in the world, because that is the heart of God. And here's the promise for Je of Jesus for all who were grieved, for all who were aching, for all who were agonizing over sin and its devastating effects and consequences. He promises both here and now partially and then perfectly in the glory that is to come, we will receive comfort. Church, listen to what Jesus is promising here. All of the mourning, all of the grieving, all of the weeping, all of the agonizing, all of the crying, the sorrow and the tears. Church, one day all of it will be gone. Jesus promises sin and suffering and illness and disease and cancer and COVID and anxiety and depression and crime and prison and divorce and debt and suicide and death. All of it will be no more. This is what he promises. And this isn't just a promise, it's to come. It, it, there's a partial fulfillment of this that we get to experience in the here and now. Blessed are, present tense, Jesus says, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. So how then are we comforted? Well, we see through scripture that we're comforted by the promise of his word. The psalmist writes again, Psalm 119, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. It's the word of God that comforts. Jesus states it plainly in this verse. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who now grieve and mourn over sin will one day rejoice and laugh in the presence of the Savior. We're not just comforted by his word. We're also comforted by his presence. Isaiah 51, the Lord declares to his people in their time of trouble, I, I am he who comforts you. John 14, one of the names given to the Holy Spirit is that he is the comforter. 2 Corinthians 1, we see from the Apostle Paul, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, I hope you'll go read the rest of this passage sometime later this week, because I think about 10 times in, in a few verses, Paul uses the words comfort, comforts, or comforted to describe who God is and what he promises. Comfort is, is not just something that Jesus does. It's who he is. He makes all of himself available to us. Blessed are those who mourn. That's present tense, for they shall be comforted. There's Part of this is in the here of now. Part of this is in the glory to come. So we're comforted by his word. We're comforted by his presence. Third, we're comforted by the promise of glory. That this brings us comfort in our moments of sorrow. And listen, I want to go too far down the rabbit trail today, but I hope you'll, you'll hear this for just a moment. We need to recognize that apart from a God who is sovereign over all things, I mean, even the worst of the worst of the things that we experience, apart from a God who is sovereign over all things, apart from a God who, who is able to take what the enemy means for evil and turn it to good, apart from a belief in that God, you have an entirely hopeless existence. You will always and only mourn. There is no promise of comfort. The world is just a a cold and a dark and a cruel place. And there's absolutely no meaning to all the brokenness that we endure. His promise is for those who are in Christ. That there is a promise of future glory that is to come. There's there's promise of a day that the worst things we are going through, we are finally going to see the other side of it. And somehow, miraculously, no matter how evil it was, no matter how cruel it was, no matter how bad it was, we will see to the other side. In some way, God will take that and use it for our good and to the glory of his name. I want you to turn with me in your Bible here for just a moment. Revelation uh, chapter 21. Um, So we're going to go to the end of Scripture because what we get in Revelation 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, is is John is given a vision for where all of this mourning is, is going. Where all of it's running, like what it's, what it's getting to and what this is leading up to. So John, or excuse me, Revelation 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and see John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. I think an indictment on our generation of Christians is that many of us lack what you could call eschatological vision. We lack a glimpse, we lack a vision, we, la- we lack eyes that, that are looking forward to the glory that's to come. And, and I, listen, I, I feel this too, it's so easy to, to be locked in on, on the here and now. I think a lot of us as Christians, we get rhinoceros vision, you know what I'm talking about? Like, it, they can only see about 50 feet in front of them. And, and it, it is so difficult to see beyond, man, that this, this immensely difficult thing that, that's right in front of us. And this is why we need the hope of God's word. This is why we need the promise of glory to remind us over and over and over again in the worst moments we're experiencing of where all of this is ultimately leading. So Revelation 21, this is John's vision 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The kingdom. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And what's he going to do? He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be what? Mourning. It will be gone. Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
Can't you wait for the moment that you're never going to struggle with sin again? Like, can't you wait for the moment nobody else dying? Nobody else getting sick? Nobody else in pain? No more suffering? No more evil? No more cancer? No more losing loved ones? All of that is no more. Like, that, that's where all of this is running. The ultimate blessing, church, is not in the experience of mourning. The ultimate blessing is in the promise of comfort. So we start in our poverty of spirit. We, we declare our spiritual bankruptcy before God. The ongoing presence and reality of sin leads us to mourn, and that leads us to a posture, as we'll see in the coming weeks, of meekness and humility and aching and longing and will hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on, that this is how the Beatitudes build. This is the progression of the Beatitudes. Those who mourn over sin are called blessed because it's those who mourn over sin who ultimately will be comforted. Your brokenness and your blessedness do not contradict. They complement because there's blessedness in our brokenness. So, so what do we do with, with, with all of this today? For, for those of us who, who recognize our poverty of spirit, who mourn over sin, who are longing for this promise of comfort, two challenges as we close up together this morning. The first challenge in response is that we be people who rejoice in the gift of godly grief. We rejoice in the gift of godly grief. Anybody in the room uh, naturally kind of like guilty conscience person? Like you do something and it just immediately gets to you. I, I've got one of these in my house. Our middle son, Nolan, um, he's, he's seven. And, and man, this little guy, he, he's such a, if you guys know Nolan, I mean, you, you've, you've seen this, this very tender, compassionate, sensitive heart. And, you know, Nolan, he, he's, he's different than the other two boys. The other two, you got to kind of interrogate him, right? Like to get the answer out. You, you go to Nolan, like, did this happen? He's like, immediately, yes, it did. And I did it. Like, they're not at fault here. It's all me. Like, he'll, he'll be the fall guy. Like, like, Nolan has at times taken the blame for things he didn't do. Just, just because he wants to be a peacemaker. He doesn't want to see other people get hurt and in trouble. And, 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 you know, obviously, like, there's some unhealthy ways that can go. But, man, like, as a father, like, what that means to me, just the sensitivity of my son's heart, that he's, he's so quick to, to, take, to accept responsibility for things that he's done wrong. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, this is the heart of the father, his heart is drawn to the one who, who, who is overwhelmed by their sin. His heart's drawn to the one who, who has this guilty conscience, who recognizes that they're out of step with his word, and who know that their righteousness can only come from him. If you were to ask the question, when should I be concerned about my sin, there's a couple of different ways that we could answer this question. The first and easiest response is that you should always be concerned about your sin. Like, there's, there's never a time to be unconcerned about sin. All sin, as insignificant as, as much of it seems, it is, as we saw R.C. Sproul, it is cosmic treason before an infinitely holy God. All sin left unchecked, it's leading us to death, it's leading us to our destruction, it's leading us apart from Christ. So the first and simplest answer is, you should always be concerned about your sin. But when should you be most concerned about your sin? I would argue we should be most concerned about our sin when we are unconcerned about our sin. It's when we don't have godly grief. It's when we, we do just run headlong away from God's word. I mean, there's no conviction. That there's, no, there's no desire for confession. There's no desire for repentance. There's no desire to be with God's people. There's, there's no desire to be in God's word. It's when we're running away from the Lord and we know it and we, we feel no conviction, no remorse whatsoever. That this is the time that we should be most concerned about our sin. Because the moment we no longer grieve what God grieves, it shows that we are walking away from his heart. 
if it grieves the heart of God, it should grieve the heart of his people. So, so listen, if, if you find yourself today in a place where your spirit, man, you, you are just waging war against the desire of your flesh, understand, friends, that is a gift. It's a gift. That, that, that is that the work of a holy God within you who is working to tear you away from you because he loves you. And so we rejoice in this gift of godly grief. We rejoice in a conscience that is sensitive to the things of God and to the direction of his word. But on the other side of rejoicing in the gift of godly grief, second, the challenge for us today is to rest in the promise that you will find comfort. We don't just stay in in this this, this somber, sober, just posture of mourning at all times. We get to rest in the promise that eventually we will find comfort, that all of this one day will be no more. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he shares a journal entry from the 18th century missionary David Brainerd Brainerd, that was uh, dated October 18, 1740. And so I'm going to share both of these. The the first is just an excerpt from uh, David Brainerd's journal on that particular day. And then it's a follow-up comment that Stott made about this journal entry that I think is really powerful. So this is how David Brainerd grieved over his sin on a particular day. He just wrote, in my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. It's a picture of a man who is mourning over sin, mourning over the sin that's in his life. But here's John Stott's follow-up comment from this that I think will bring us a lot of comfort today. He writes, tears of mourning are the holy water which God is said to store in his bottle. And such sinners who bewail their own sinfulness will be comforted by the only comfort which can relieve their distress, namely the free forgiveness of God. There's blessedness in our brokenness. There's blessedness in our brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn because it's those who grieve. It's those who mourn. It's those who ache. It's those who agonize over the presence of sin in their lives, in the church, in the world. It's those who are going to find comfort. It's those who are going to experience the eternal joy and lasting comfort in the arms of Jesus Christ. And with today uh, being Father's Day, um, I've spent a good bit of time this week thinking about my own dad. If you don't know my story, my dad passed away um, uh, just over 10 years ago. And as we consider what it means today to mourn, um, I was reminded this past week of, of one of the very few times I actually saw my dad mourn. I saw my dad cry multiple times. I mean, not, not many times. I think I could count on, uh, you know, probably one hand and a, and a couple fingers. The number of times I saw my dad cry, you know, and uh, he was only 50 when he passed away. None of his closest immediate family members passed away in, in his lifetime. He had some, some closer friends who you know, lost, but, but one, only one really occasion that, that jumped out of my mind of a time that I really saw my dad just mourn in the way that we've looked at this morning. Um, my dad worked for a Christian travel agency and traveled all over the world. And we were growing up, we got to travel a lot with my dad. And um, one of the main things that he did was he spearheaded trips to Israel. And so when I was in seventh grade, I got to go to Israel with my dad. I got to spend, I got to miss school for two weeks and, and go spend 10 days with my dad in, in Israel. And I remember it was one of the last days of the trip, we went to Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull where it's traditionally believed that Jesus was crucified. And we traveled with about 100 others. And so we just had this, this beautiful moment. Again, I'm only about 12 years old, but, but I just remember it being a, a very profound thing that, that, that I experienced at a young age. 
Um, we, we sang a couple of hymns together uh, at uh, the site of the crucifixion, and then we entered into just this moment of, of reflection and silence. And I didn't really know what to do with that. You know, I'm just kind of looking around and taking in some of the scenery and, and, and just trying to kind of make sense. I, I remember feeling kind of internally wrestling with like, man, what, what do I do with all this? And, and, and as we're sitting in this moment of silence, I just, uh, we're sitting down, I remember looking up at my dad. He had sunglasses on. But, um, but as we were sitting there in silence, I just saw these big tears streaming down his face. And, and I knew he was praying. I couldn't totally make out what he's praying. But, but one, one thing I heard my dad repeating as he sat there and prayed was thank you, Jesus, for saving me from my sins. I heard him pray that a couple times. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from my sins. I saw a man who in one simultaneous moment, there was mourning over his sin and there was comfort in his Savior. And right there at the place where the man of sorrows was crushed for our sin, that was the same place where the sins and the sorrows of man were crushed. There's blessedness in our brokenness. There's blessedness in the promise of comfort that is awaiting on the other side of everything that's terrible that we experience. Church, hear me again this morning. Your brokenness and your blessedness are not in contradiction with one another. There's blessedness in our brokenness. There's mercy in our mourning. There's grace in our grieving. And the promise of Matthew 5.4 is that those who mourn over their sins will be comforted by their Savior. So here's, here's what I want to do as we close out our time together this morning. Um, in just a moment, we're going to pray together a Puritan prayer called the Valley of Vision. The last few years, this is something we have done at the beginning uh, of the year as a church body. Uh, but I, I think so much of the language of this prayer speaks exactly to Matthew 5, 4 this morning. And I, I thought that would just be something we would pray together corporately as we close. And so these words are going to be on the screen, but we're going to read these together here in just a moment. And then from here, we're going to move right into our time uh, of communion. And, and I hope you will just rest in these words this morning and, and, and let this reality come to life, seeing the blessing of brokenness, resting in the promise of comfort that we find in, in Jesus. So Valley of Vision, um, again, the words will be on the screen. Let's read this together. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is God's word.